question I have for you tonight is, how do you see God? How do you see God? What is your view of God? Think of that for just a second here. Uh, it's important. Some of the answers uh, that might be coming to mind might be as Father, right? Um, powerful, all-knowing, right? Loving, so on and so on, right? All these things come to mind when we think of the name God in English, right? But the actual name Yahweh, which is, is the Lord. Um, you see, these things come to mind, and those are all biblically correct, right? That's what the Bible says, that, that who God is. But the Bible also speaks in great measure of a truth, there's a truth about how we see God in connection to how we react to the challenges in life. So how we see God all in all is really important because how we see him is going to see, is going to depend, or how we react to challenges and things in life is really going to depend on how we see him. You see, um, our reactions to everyday challenges really point back to how we view God. Paul in Hebrews 10.24, and I'll read it for you guys. You guys don't have to go there because we have a lot to cover tonight. Uh, says that we are to provoke one another to love. We're to provoke one another to love. What does that tell us about ourselves? If we're to provoke one another to love... That tells us that we don't naturally love, right? Because we're to provoke one another to love. James in chapter 1 verse 2 says, My brethren, count it all joy when you encounter or fall into various trials. Why does James feel the need to tell us that when we fall into various trials, we're to count it all joy or we're to have joy in that moment, right? Because naturally, we don't naturally react in a joyful manner to trials, right? We don't, if we're really honest with ourselves. And I'm being really honest with you. I usually don't. Rare is the time that I'm like, yay, here comes a trial. God is going to do something great through that. I mean, yeah, we eventually work our ways, our way into that, right? We eventually grow into that place. But initially, that's not what we have. So, all in all, because our immediate reaction to life's trials are not challenges, are, are not joy or love, then sometimes that could lead us to think that that's how God is. Sometimes that could lead us to a place where we start to believe that's how God is. But that's, that's not true. That's not what the Bible says. That's only our view of God. Just because we're not easily provoked or we're not easily, we don't easily love or we don't easily have joy. And just because the Bible says we're made in the image of God, that doesn't mean that that's who God is. That's just our view of him. See, I've been reading this book that is called Gentle and Lowly. 
And uh, the author is Dane Ertland, gentle and lowly. And I love this quote that he says in the book. He says this, Yahweh needs no provoking to love, only to anger. We, mankind, or his creation, need no provoking to anger, only to love. Once again, the Bible is one long attempt to deconstruct our natural vision in regards to, sorry, to deconstruct our natural vision of who God is. You see, what he's saying here is that the way that we view God is the way that we are going to live our lives. Many of us, and I'm one of those persons as well, we view God in such a way that it is not, doesn't do justice to what the Bible says. We view God in a way where we see that he's easy, or fast or easy to wrath. But in all in all, what he's saying here is that's completely the opposite. Because what the truth is, is that he's not easy to wrath. He's easy to love. It's hard for him to wrath. And so, our view of God is going to tell a lot about how we walk out our salvation and so they, then Paul also talks about the natural man and the spiritual man, right? The natural man and the spiritual man. And so in the same way in views, we um, naturally tend to view God with that natural view, with our fleshly eyes or our natural, our flesh, right? Um, but there's also another way to view God, and that's the supernatural vision of viewing God. So, um, all in all, if we view God with a natural view, what ends up happening is that we end up tippy-toeing through life. We end up sneaking around, just getting by. What can I do just to get by and say that I'm a Christian? You see, when we choose this supernatural vision or the supernatural view of God, what ends up really happening is that we see God for who he is and not for who we think he is. And ultimately, what our view of God really points to is not what we think of God, right? Because a lot of times we think of view and we think of what we're thinking in our mind. But what our view of God is really just a surface level um, factor that happens to say what's really in our hearts. So if you go with me to Luke chapter 6, verse 45, Jesus is responding here and he says something very important. So in Luke 6, 45, and we'll get to Proverbs in a little bit here. In Luke 6, 45, he says this, A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. So what he's saying is that what we treasure in our hearts will determine how we view God. 
So whatever we put our eyes on, whatever we really hold close, is the way that we're going to view God. If our treasure is good, we will see God as good. If our treasure is evil, then we will see God as evil. And the product of this will be what our external actions really look like. This is why Jesus doesn't just stop there. Jesus doesn't just stop there and says what you treasure in your heart, that's what everything else would look like. He doesn't just say that. A lot of times we focus on specific parts of verses, but we forget that there's a context to them. Look at what he says, not in um, verse 45, but in verse 46, following that specifically. Um, He says to them, But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? He says, why do you call me Lord, 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 and not do the things which I say? You see, to call someone Lord is to fully surrender yourself to that, to them, to that person. He says, you are, what you are doing is a contradiction because you're calling me Lord, Lord, but you're not doing what I'm asking you to do. And later on, he gets a little more deep and personal and he actually calls them hypocrites. Because that's what it is. If we say that, if we call him Lord, Lord, we're saying, God, we're surrendering our whole hearts, our whole lives to you. We go to church. We serve at church. We read our Bible. We pray. We even attend a prayer service. But we're not actually doing what you asked us to do. So, What has God asked us to do? And I'm not just talking in general, universally. I'm asking, what has God specifically asked us to do? And that question is for myself as well. As I was, as I prep these messages sometimes, what I really see is that God is speaking to me as well. He's challenging me in these things. So, what has he asked us to do? And are we doing it? Are we being faithful to what God has asked us to do? So next, we're going to read Proverbs 15 through 19. Now, um, a, a pastor theologian actually described the book of Proverbs as a balanced meal. Can anybody guess why? It covers everything. Okay, good. That's really good, actually. It covers everything. I like that. So what is a balanced meal, right? A balanced meal, I guess, depends on, on, who, uh, on who you are, right? What kind of, everybody's a little bit different. But um, when I think balanced meal, I think meat, vegetables, grains, and I'm pretty sure there's other things I'm missing there, right? But that's just like the like part of it. I don't want to get too much into it because we have so much to cover. But it's those things, right? And... Um, that's a balanced meal. Now, I hope no one in here, but nobody says when they're meal planning, right? Because that's the thing nowadays, everybody meal plans. When you're meal planning for the week, nobody says, I'm going to eat all my meat on Monday. I'm going to eat all my vegetables on Tuesday. I'm going to eat all my grains on Wednesday. And you guys get the point, right? Nobody says that. When you sit down to eat a meal, hopefully, 
You try to include either your meat or some type of protein. You try to include your vegetables. At least I do. I like vegetables. I don't know about you guys, but I, I try to include the vegetables, right, and the grains and whatever else your body really needs, right? You try to include all these things. So in a similar way, Proverbs is said to be the same thing. Each chapter of Proverbs is like a balanced meal of the Word of God. Okay, each chapter of Proverbs has everything you need for that day. Um, and as I was uh, researching a little bit and stuff, uh, one of the pastors suggested that you read one Proverbs a day in the morning, uh, aside from your devotionals, and that you take those and actually apply them, right? Because wisdom is knowledge applied. That's what wisdom is. So uh, Solomon, he uh, applied this knowledge, and when he learned these things, he Put them on paper for his son or on whatever they had back then, right? So, anyway, I don't want to get too caught up on this. But what I'm trying to say is that we won't be reading all of Proverbs 15 through 19 here, okay? So tonight, forget about the balanced meal. We're having meat tonight. That's all we're having tonight. So if you like meat, yay, like me. But if you don't, I'm sorry. We're having meat tonight, and that's all we're having. So we're going to go through specific proverbs here. And so, um, as we go to these, through these proverbs, I want you to be attentive. I want you to be attentive because I didn't just pick random proverbs. Basically, what I want you to be attentive of is that um, each one of these proverbs contains a person or a type of person who had a choice to make um, before becoming. And what I mean by that, uh, becoming, I mean that they made choices that were habitual and over a period of time that, that got them there. For example, um, somebody who casually golfs, and I, I don't golf and I don't ever intend to, I, but if you do, I respect that. But somebody who casually golfs, can't really be called a golfer, right? Like, I know a lot of people nowadays, everybody likes to call themselves what they want. That's fine. But I, I don't think I can call somebody who casually golfs a golfer, right? When I think of golfer, and, and, and maybe you think differently. When I think of golfer, I think of somebody that has worked their, they, they're, they're very disciplined and have eaten Breath, breathed, uh, breath. Somebody corrected me over here. Uh, it just—it's all about golf, and they've trained themselves to the point where they become professionals. Really, okay. That's what I think when I think about a golfer, a chef, anything. Right? It's somebody who's dedicated their life to it. So when we think about these proverbs, you're going to see people like that. They have dedicated their lives to it. It's not a person who has done it once or twice or whatever it may be. It's people who have dedicated their life to habitually making these choices that led them to be who they are and have become that person. And so they all had a choice. There's, there's, everybody has a choice. Nobody, despite what society or culture might tell us, want to tell us that we are a product of our environment, that is a lie. We, we have choices to make. And yes, some choices are harder than others, but we have choices to make, and I'm going to get on. But 
that choice that these people had to make was one between the natural view and the supernatural view to see God for who he really is. Okay, so keep that in mind as we're reading through these. So let's start in chapter 15 of Proverbs. So here we're going, not 15, sorry. Yeah, chapter 15, verse 5. So here we're going to see three different people uh, to begin with. It's going to be the fool, a scoffer, and a wrathful man. Okay, so verse 5 says, A fool despises his father's instruction, but he who receives correction is prudent. Verse 12, jump down with me. Try to keep up along with me because I'm going to be jumping uh, down. I'll try not to go backwards. Uh, verse 12, A scoffer does not love one who corrects him, nor will he go to the wise. That's a scoffer. And then a wrathful man. A wrathful man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger allays contention. Okay, so we, here we have a fool, a scoffer, and a wrathful man. You see, a fool despises instruction, a scoffer mocks it. What it really says about them is that they've been unwilling and continue to be unwilling to receive because the instruction they despise is really correction. The instruction that is, has, been tri, the, has been given to them is really correction. And so they refuse it. You see, during my time, little time teaching, I've taught like, I think this is my second year, uh, teaching freshmen, sophomore, uh, junior, and seniors actually. And during my time teaching, one of the things that um, I learned was this method of teaching where basically you do a lesson, you instruct them, you teach them, the students, um, then you do it with them, and then you let them do it by themselves. Okay? So... You do it for them, you teach them on the board, then you do it with them, then you let, let them do it by themselves. Now, in this method of teaching, the thing that holds everything together is correction. Without correction, this method of teaching does not work. Why? Because when I'm doing it with them, I'm basically saying I'm going to take you from what you saw on the board, and I'm going to send you off, prepare you to send you off on your own. But I can't send them off on their own if I haven't corrected their mistakes. It needs to happen. You see, most students, they're willing to accept the correction. Some don't, but their grades reflect it. In the same way, the scoffer and the fool are not willing to receive the correction. And because they're not willing to receive the correction, it hinders the learning process, and they became set in their ways. So when the process of correction is rejected, it doesn't end there. What ends up happening when we start rejecting the process of correction, we get trapped. We're imprisoned. And so for the fool and the scoffer, they're imprisoned in their foolishness, and the scoffer as a scoffer. He mocks one thing, he's going to mock everything. And so what ends up happening, there's this cycle that they enter 
that prevents and hinders them from any type of growth. And for us, it really hinders us when we reject correction because what ends up happening is we end up in this cycle. And the Lord, as he's trying to work, we keep rejecting it because the Lord's not going to force his hand. So, for the wrathful, it says, A wrathful man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger allays contention. So, notice here that the wrathful man, he stirs up strife. So, this reminds me of like the scoffer and the fool being stuck in this cycle. And because they're stuck in this cycle, rejecting everything, they're no longer making any progress. So, what do they do? What do they have left to do? They become this wrathful man. Yeah, when you do the same thing over and over and over and over and over and over again, they become this wrathful man. And they start to stir up strife. And so, receiving instruction, allowing correction says, I find my identity in Christ. You see, when we step away from that, that cycle, and we decide to receive correction, then what ends up happening is that we actually are finding our identity in Christ. See, a wrathful man is usually like you could know a wrathful man when they're loud, when they're obnoxious, when they have to be seen. But when we find our identity in Christ, we could be quiet. We don't have to put ourselves out there. And so... In rejecting, we get set in our ways and remain trapped in our natural view of God. Continuing on, verse 20 says, A wise son makes a father glad, but a foolish man despises his mother. So here in this one, in comparison or contrast, not comparison, we have a wise son who makes his father glad. Why though? Why does he make his father glad? Because he has received instruction and correction and is not walking in his foolish ways. So because he's received that instruction and because he's received that correction with open arms, he doesn't walk in his foolish ways. You see, being told what to do is not, is, it is one of the most difficult things for human beings, I think. I mean, I don't like to be told what to do. Anybody like to be told what to do? I mean, if you're married, you have to be like to be told what to do, right? No? <laughs> yeah, right? When somebody tells you what to do, it just kind of like it stirs up something in you, right? My wife doesn't tell me what to do. <laughs> there you go. So what I'm trying to say um, is that it's just not in us. To be told what to do, right? That is why the Bible said says that pride comes before the pride. You see, it's our pride that doesn't allow for correction, for us to receive that correction and instruction. Continuing on, verse 16. I mean, verse 16, chapter 16. In chapter 16, we're going to go all the way to verse 27. So on my Bible is the next page. Um, so it says, an ungodly man digs up evil and it is on his lips like a burning fire a perverse man sows strife and a whisperer separates the best of friends a violent man entices his neighbor and leads him in a way that is not good he winks his eye to devise perverse things he pursues 
the lips and brings about evil. So here we have the ungodly man, the perverse man, and the violent man. You see, the ungodly man, he digs up evil. The evil that he does is not enough for him. He wants to do more evil. He goes after it. He hungers for it and goes searching for it. And not only that, but is willing to work and get his hands dirty to, to, to feed that hunger for evil. So he digs it up. And if that's not enough, this proverb continues to say that his lips are like a burning fire. So initially when I read this, I was like, what does that mean? Your lips are like a burning fire. But what it really means is that he can't wait to tell people about the evil that he did. He can't wait to tell people about the evil that he did. Not only does he go searching for it, but when he does it, he's, he can't wait to tell people about this. He has a need to tell everyone. You see, where the ungodly man digs up evil, the next man over, the perverse man, sows. What does he sow? What does it say there? He sows strife, contention, gossip. It's not just random, but it's an intentional gossip with a purpose, so much so that friendships, relationships are broken up. The violent man, on the other hand, goes a step further and encourages others to join him and those who do not join him, he provokes to have a violent reaction. All in all, he does not consider the effect of the full effect of his actions. So we have these three men. One goes searching for a dig up. I can't wait to tell people. The second one sows the seeds of strife, right? Kind of like a farmer. He sows, and he's going to reap what he sows. And the last one, the violent man, he encourages people to join him. And not only encourages them, but when they say, no, I don't want to join you, he provokes them to react in anger towards him. So notice, notice how these uh, men, people, have, have chosen to view God in such a way that they get stuck in this cycle Right? But then this chapter gives us the silver head, the silver haired head. Okay? Verse 31 says, The silver haired head is a crown of glory. Okay? The silver haired head is a crown of glory. Try saying that fast over and over again. It's kind of hard. I keep getting stuck with this word. Okay? Anybody with a silver haired head here tonight? Don't raise your hand if you don't want to. I, I have I have one white hair somewhere in here. I don't know where it's at. I saw it about a month ago, and then it got lost. I don't know what happened to it. Um, but the Bible says to be proud of it, right? It is a crown of glory. It is a significant of honor and value. Sadly, in our culture, in the United States, it's not like that, Right? Here in the United States, we have a, a trouble with um, honoring, respecting our elderly. We have trouble with that. And, and honestly, it breaks my heart because in, 
the context that we're talking about, the cultures of the context that we're talking about, they saw people with gray hair, and they saw that as something of honor and value of experience. And that's what they saw in them. And they understood what this meant. But the verse doesn't end there. It has a big if here, okay? So I know what you guys are thinking. You guys are holding on to your seats and saying, but wait, you're saying that every gray-haired head, I said it, um, is, is wise and, and, and has this, this honoring experience? Well, we all know that's not true, right? Unfortunately. And that's why this big if is here. If it is found in the way of righteousness... If it is found in the way of righteousness. You see, in other words, often seen as blessing, but not always. It is in age itself, but in age in the way of righteousness. Age itself, age itself does not always make people better. Even less godlier. Think about that for a minute. It doesn't always, right? Um unfortunately, but there is blessing in that when we have walked in the way of righteousness and we grow into that into that in the to that stage of our life where we can say, Yeah, I've walked with God and I've been through the hard times. I've made the choices to see him for who he is and not who the world tells me that he is. Because there's so many lies about God out there nowadays. There will always were, but it's so easy. You just click on Google and do something, and everything comes up. But I won't say too much on that. Okay, so verse uh, chapter 17. Let's move on to chapter 17. A, in verse 2, a wise servant will rule over a son who causes shame and will share an inheritance among the brothers. You see, here in verse 2, a wise servant reminds me of Joseph, right? His brothers sell him off into slavery. So he was a slave, then he is wrongfully imprisoned. But though he was a slave, and though he was a prisoner wrongfully, he was wise. He said to be wise. And he ruled over many because in God's economy... It's not about possessions. It's not about position. It's not about relationship, right? He was in a foreign land. He was in a prison, so he had no position. He had no possessions because he was in prison. But it's not about that. What it's about is our view of God. You see, Joseph had a view of God that was so high and mighty that no matter what came his way, he knew that God was not going to leave him there. God wasn't going to leave him there. And that's just one example because we don't have time for many other examples. But this is what he says when he talks about a wise servant that will rule over a son who causes shame. Verse 4. An evildoer gives heed to false lips. A liar listens eagerly to a spiteful tongue. Verse 11. An evil man seeks only rebellion, therefore a cruel messenger will be sent against him. So we have here an evildoer and an evil man. One's actually a doing man and one's just an evil man, period. You see, 
this is, if when we read this, what this should really point us to, it should be a heart check, really. Because what it's talking about is false lips, gossip, right? And it's also talking about rebellion. Basically, rebelling against God's will in your life through whoever he places in our lives. And so, it's a question that we should ask ourselves is, do we love to hear a gossip or lies? Do we love to hear gossip or lies? And of course, our immediate reaction is, of course not, we don't like to hear gossip or lies. Right? But do we constantly find ourselves in the middle of conversations where gossip is being spoken? Notice I said constantly. See, this can point to the fact that we ourselves love lies. We ourselves love gossip. You see, gossip is anything confided or heard somewhere else about someone which we have not been given permission to divulge. That's what gossip is. Because we have information of someone else that they confided in us or that we heard from somewhere else, and we feel the need to share with others. We feel the need to share with others. Gossip does not have to be something bad. It could be something good. But when we communicate, it could be malintended. So gossiping isn't always bad. You see, we need to be bold when it comes to gossip. I feel like this is a big, big issue in, in, in the church. Gossip, a lot of talking. And we excuse it with, oh, you know, no, I, I, just, we, I just wanted to pray for that person, so I told this person about it. I just wanted to, to, to make sure that somebody else is praying for them or thinking of them. I just, I just needed to tell someone. That's gossip. And so when we do find ourselves face-to-face with gossip, the real response when we have the correct view of God should be intervening if need be and say, hey, point that person back to what the Bible says. Point that person back to, hey, if this is not your information, then you shouldn't be sharing this. But also, sometimes you don't get that opportunity. Just flee from it, right? Paul would say, flee from sin. Flee from sexual immorality. Well, in the same way, let's flee from gossip because it's a serious thing in the Bible. And so here we see that the evil doing, the evil man, one likes gossip and the other one's in rebellion. See, knowing the truth, to dwell, we choose to dwell in it and we'll, we will reap what we sow. If we, if we choose to dwell in that rather than stand up for what is true, then what's going to happen is that we're going to reap what we sow. And so it's more of a heart check here. So then verse 17 says, A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. You see, here a friend loves at all times, and a brother is born in adversity. And so when we read this verse and when... I, I, I'm at fall of it. I don't know if you guys thought this immediately. But when we read this verse, immediately what comes to mind is like how people are towards me, right? How people are towards me. Are they a friend to me? And what kind of friends are they? 
Um, and that's what comes to mind initially. But as I study this a little more, what I realized is it's this proverb is not talking about how friends are to me. What it's really talking about is how am I a friend to others? How am I towards others in my relationships? Because you see, what it really points to in this proverb is Jesus. Jesus did not say, I'm going to leave heaven because they love me. I'm going to go to the cross because they love me. I'm going to suffer because they love me. I'm going to die on the cross because they love me. That's not what Jesus said. Because we didn't love him, right? John 3.16 tells us that, and we all know John 3.16. Maybe not word for word, but we know what it says. It's, it, he loved us first. We, didn't, we have nothing to offer him. There is not one hint of love in us without him. And so when we see, come to that realization, what we realize and what we should come to is, what kind of friends are we to others during adversity at all times? This is important because our view of God will determine what kind of friends we are to others, what kind of people we are towards others. You see, if we view God as a wrathful, vengeful God, then when somebody does something to us, then we're going to be wrathful and vengeful toward other people, even though the Bible says specifically not to. But it's our view of God that matters. So in verse 18, continuing on, um, in verse 18, he says this, A man devoid of understanding shakes hands in a pledge, and in verse 23, a wicked man accepts a bribe behind the back. And verse 25, a foolish son is a grief to his father and a bitterness to her who bore him. So we see a man devoid of understanding, a wicked man, and a foolish son here. And while a man is devoid of understanding, a wicked man and a foolish son will have these negative consequences for their actions what we should take away from these is that wisdom, which is knowledge applied, helps to avoid these situations. In that we will have blessing. Wisdom all allows us to see God for who he really is. You see, here, a man devoid of understanding shaking hands in pledge, in pledge and becomes security for his surety. Sorry, surety for his friend. What he's saying is that a man who doesn't have wisdom will make deals with just anybody and will take on other people's debt. Is what he's saying. Surety is basically taking on people's debt. And that's a man who doesn't have understanding. So somebody with wisdom, what it's really pointing to is that we are able to discern that. In 23, a wicked man accepts bribe behind the back to pervert the ways of justice. A wicked man is constantly perverting the ways of justice. He's corrupt and corrupting those things that are good. In 25, a foolish son is a grief to his father and bitterness to her who bore him. So a foolish son 
He's a grief to his father. Why? Because he, re- he rejected, rejects this instruction, this correction from the father. You'll see this over and over again. The foolish son that basically rejects instruction, rejects his father and dishonors him. Um, so then continuing on to verse chapter 18, he says in verse 2, A fool has no delight in understanding, but in expressing his own heart. A fool has no delight in understanding, but in expressing his own heart. You see, I like to think of this category as of fools as one-uppers. Okay? As one-uppers. The, the part that really gets me is the expressing their heart. You see, these are the people that usually can't stop talking, always want to be heard, and... They always have a better story than the one that anybody just told, even if it's not their own. Anybody ever get those people? Like you, you're just excited about a story, and you're like, should I share it in this group? Should I not? And you share it. But then somebody has a better story than you do, and they just continue to do that. These are what I call one-uppers, and this is what I think uh, this verse is talking about. You see, they don't like to listen Because they have no delight to hear wisdom. They know it all. Why would they want to hear any wisdom from anybody else? They are also clever in their own eyes that they just need to let the world know. It's a self-centered attitude rather than a God-centered attitude. You see, a God-centered attitude or God-centered people are hungry for wisdom are hungry for instruction, are hungry for understanding and correction. The fool who is self-centered is only looking to be heard. Now, if you're always talking, can you really listen? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I mean, if you're super gifted, I guess you can talk and receive at the same time. I haven't met that person. If you guys do meet a person like that. Let me know. <laughs> Some people are pointing to their wives. Okay. Um, but, but that's what it's really saying here. So continuing on in verse 19 of chapter 18, it says, A brother offended is harder to win than a strong city, and contentions are like the bars of a castle. And then verse 23 says, The poor man uses entreaties, entreaties but the rich answers roughly. You see, within families, speaking about the brother offended, it is true that um, brothers and sisters and family even, they can find amongst themselves. But what happens when somebody else who's an outsider comes into the group and, 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 and tries to pick on one of the family members? Everybody joins forces, right? Everybody joins forces. That's just how family is. There's quarrels, there's fights amongst family and they stick together but i have also experienced that there's also feuds between families where someone did something hurtful that was deep enough where it broke relationship and it ended up not only affecting the offender and the offended but it continued on for generations one of the examples in the Bible is Jacob and Esau, right? Jacob, the deceiver, living up to his name. He deceives his own father 
Isaac so that he could take his brother's blessing, which he already had given it to him technically, right? It's a loophole. Um, but he still deceives his father, right? And what happens then? Once Esau comes back, who I imagine was a big guy with muscles and hairy and everything, because he was very hairy is how the Bible describes him. He comes back and he wants to kill Jacob because of this. And what happens? His mother, who first enticed him to lie to his father, tells him, grab your stuff. You're going with your uncle Laban. Laban, sorry. Laban, Laban. One of those two. Yeah, I'm, I'm over here in Spanish and English. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's how I read sometimes. Names are just names. It's so Spanish. Sometimes it comes out. Um, but Laban, you know, you're going with him. And, and, and you, which didn't go off much better. But then you have this split of two, uh, two tribes or two cultures that come up or two uh, nations that come up, right? And so you see it later down the road where they're still not well. Um, and so we see that uh, from this verse. You see, in verse 23, though, it may seem negative statement all the way through. So verse 23, again, says, The poor man uses entreaties. But the rich answers roughly. So it may seem as a negative statement all the way through, but it really speaks magnitudes about our approach to God. In, and in turn, our approach to others as well. So it speaks magnitudes of this, about our approach to God and others as well. You see, there's a deep connection between the two. The poor man here represents humility, whereas a rich man or woman, whichever one, right, represents someone who is puffed up and prideful. Riches can come in terms of monetary value or what we know as well, knowledge, right? So these both can happen. You see, a poor man in humility begs for favor and justice. A rich man will not beg out of pride. Now, hear me out. There is nothing wrong with being wealthy. There's nothing wrong with that. I think that God blesses people with wealth sometimes. God blesses them with wealth sometimes. So it's okay to be blessed by God and be wealthy. But what it, I think it's talking about here is when he blesses us with wealth, do we allow that to define who we are and who God is in our eyes? Because we allow money to define who we are, wealth to define who we are, then we're going to be like this person in the proverb, where they were prideful and will not, will not go to God. And we see in Luke, I think chapter 18, I might be wrong, where the rich man comes and he says, uh, teacher, uh, what else shall I do? Like, I've done all these things. And he's like shrugging off, whatever. He's, he's got it all. And so finally, uh, Jesus says, sell it all, give it all away, and come follow me. Now, we don't know what happened to the rich young ruler, but what we see there is that he leaves. He's sad and he leaves. And so we see that. So, um, even in wealth, we should approach God and man with humility. All in all, we have nothing to offer, and the only thing we have about us is Christ. It's really what we have to offer is Christ. When we stand at the white, uh, the great white throne, 
God is not going to say, oh, let me see what car you bought. Let me see what career you had. Let me see all the kids that you had. Let me see the house that you bought on the, on the earth. No. He's going to say, do you have Jesus or not? If you do, you stand here. If you don't, then you stand over there. So that's all we have to offer. So then continuing on in chapter 19, and I'm running out of time here. All right, ran out of time already. But in chapter 19, verse 5, he says, A false witness will not go unpunished, and he who speaks lies will not escape. Verse 9, again a false witness. He says, A false witness will not go unpunished, and he who speaks lies shall perish. Then verse 13, A foolish son is the ruin of his father, and the contentions of a wife are a continual dripping. Then verse 19, A man of great wrath will suffer punishment will suffer punishment for if you rescue him you will have to do it again verse 24 a lazy man buries his hand in a bowl and will not so much as bring it to his mouth then continuing on in the last one verse 28 a disreputable witness scorns justice and the mouth of the wicked devours iniquity. So here first we have a false witness who will not go unpunished, right? And uh, his li- he will not escape his lies. And in verse 9, a false witness will not go unpunished, and who speaks lies shall perish. So they both speak about not escaping and about perishing. So nowadays we have this concept that we believe that maybe, just maybe, we can get away with lies. Maybe just maybe we can get away with lies, right? And we have this concept of the white lie. And believe it or not, I've had Christians try to argue the white lie. Oh, this isn't a lie because this is what it really is. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that you will be found. You see, the, God sees the hearts of men. And when he sees the heart, your heart and he knows that you're lying, then you're going to get found. Um, now, does that does that mean that just because we lie, oh, we're we're gonna be punished? And I mean, obviously, right? If we lie, <laughs> we should repent. But um, we all lie at some point or the other. And I'm not calling you liars. What I'm saying is, like, we all fall into sin here and there. But these people have made it a habit. They're a false witness. So then, verse 13: A foolish son is ruined of his father, and the contentions of wife are continued dripping. So again, the foolish son who is a ruin to his father. But then they throw in the wife in here, and when we see the wife in a continual dripping, I think about like a faucet that just drips all night. Anybody ever have that in their small place or apartment or room? Nobody? Wow. Nobody wants to say I have. It's very annoying to have a continued dripping. Now, here they say wife, but let me tell you, husbands can be the same way. Husbands can be the same, and even more sometimes. So uh, it just says, it basically saying, um, don't be the ruin of the father-husband. Verse 19, a man of great wrath will suffer punishment, for if you rescue him, you will have to do it again. So what he talks about here is basically a man who's of great wrath, but he's so in this cycle of continuous anger and wrath that even if you pull him out to it, he just wants to go back to it. See, the Bible talks about this a little bit when he says, when in Proverbs 26, it says, that as a dog returns to his own vomit, so a fool repeats his folly. 
And that is really an indication that if you continue to return to your sin, if you continue to return to your wrath, it's really an indication that your view of God is distorted. That there's something not right between your relationship with the Lord and what the Bible says. So verse 24, sorry, yeah, 24, which is a similar thing. A lazy man buries his hand in the bowl and will not so much as bring it to his mouth again. So a lazy man, he just buries his hand in the bowl and so lazy, doesn't want to pull it back out and just continues to be in the same muck and whatever he has going on. And this last one, this reputable witness scorns justice. This reputable witness scorns justice, and the mouth of the wicked devours iniquity. Again, this is a disreputable witness, which is a witness that can't, it's kind of like a false witness, really. Um, and he constantly distorts the justice, and uh, he's just ready to devour wickedness. So when I was looking up things, it kind of, they kind of said like when you're really hungry, and you buy like a burrito, and you just like basically don't even chew in. You just swallow it. No, nobody has ever done that. I hope nobody has ever done that. I mean, I've been hungry, but unless it depends. It depends where you go for your burritos. They can be huge or they can be tiny. So, um, yeah, no, hopefully nobody ever does that. <laughs> so, um, so how do we allow instruction and correction into our hearts? And believe me, I'm finishing up here. How do we allow instruction and correction into our hearts? What do you guys think about that? Go with me to Proverbs 18.10. Proverbs 18. This one I skipped over on purpose because I was going to go back to it. But Proverbs 18.10, what it says is, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs, run to it and are safe. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. So this is important because this is the only part, the only verse in the whole books of Proverbs where it speaks, where it says the name of the Lord. The name of the Lord. Okay? This is the only part. The only place. You see, in context of the cultures, those, the cultures, when they named their kids, they named them according to their destiny and their character. Where they were going to go and who they were going to be. We don't name kids like that, right? We don't name our kids like that. We're like, oh... Uh, Billy Bob sounds nice. Let's let's throw that name in there. Not that any that there's nothing wrong with any, that name, but basically, whatever sounds good is what we end up naming our kids, right? Um, we, me and my wife, have talked about names over and over again, and, and we keep praying for a name that it's not just like mainstream or something like that, like Jesus or something, because we're his, we're his, like we talk about all the time, like that's a. There's a lot of Jesuses in Central America, Mexico, Hispanic countries, and we just don't want to end up there. You see, in the same way how culturally in this context it represented destiny and character, here when it talks about it, um, what, what the name of the Lord really is saying is his character and his destiny. He's eternal. That's his destiny, right? But he also has a character. And so the best way to describe his character is when uh, Moses, when he's sent out by him, by God, he says, let me see your glory. He says, I won't go if you're not going before me. So then he goes before him and says, I will show you my glory. So in Exodus 34, 
So if you go to Exodus 34, okay, in Exodus 34, verse 5, he says, Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. So this is the name of the Lord again, but he's about to proclaim it. He's about to tell him his character. And he says, And proclaim the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious. Pay attention to this. And we're not going to go any further into the verse because we're out of time here. But notice what's the first thing that he says. Right? He says, this is the name of the Lord. Merciful and gracious. That should be like mind-blowing to us. Because remember when I said earlier, what's the first thing you think when you think the name God? Or what's really in our hearts when we think the name God? If we're really honest, sometimes what we think is wrath. It's like, God is watching me. I, I'm, a, I'm a sinner. I'm messing up. I'm not pleasing God. Right? And when we think that, the last thing that we think, and if you're here, you know, where you do think the first thing is merciful and gracious, that's awesome. You're a greater saint because that's not the first thing I think all the time. But his name is merciful. His name is gracious. You see, that's the character of God. And so when we say, how do we get to a place where we receive correction? How do we get to a place where we are able to receive instruction? It really points back to where our heart is. Because where our heart is is going to define where our point, what our our view of God is. And so, when we see God as merciful, when we see God as gracious, then this passage from Matthew chapter 11, 22 through 29, Matthew eleven twenty to 29, becomes real to us. It becomes a reality to us. Okay, and I'm going to read it to you guys. You guys could go there if you want, but I have it here in times short. So it says, Matthew 11, 29. Come to me, all who are burdened, heavy laden. I will give you rest, for I am lowly and gentle in heart. Two things is that those who come to Jesus are no longer burdened or heavy laden. And second is that his character is lowly and gentle in heart. You see, so when we see God as merciful and gracious, it's easy for us to re- receive instruction. It's easy for us to receive correction. Guys, correction is hard. Correction is hard. We have to admit that. It's not easy to be told that you're doing it wrong. It's not easy to be told that the way that you're living life is not the right way it's hard but when we see it in the light of not a wrathful god but a merciful god and not a god who's going to be harsh with us and punish us for doing it wrong but rather a god who is gentle and lowly what happens is that we find joy and we become drawn to this God 
that the Bible talks about. This God that we know. And so, how do we, how do we get to that place? We get to that place by changing our view of God. And notice that Proverbs, if you're still there, 18.10, the rest of that verse says, the righteous run to it. When we do see God as merciful and gracious, gentle and lowly, we're going to run to him. We're going to drop everything running. I don't know if you guys knew this, but in this culture, men did not run. It was a dishonor for men to run. Like you saw somebody running late to class and whatever, they're all girded up because they had like these long bathrobes. And so they had to gird up every time they ran so you could see their legs. Um, but if you saw that, it was a dishonor for them. So when it says they, they run to him, it's like I've left everything behind. I've dropped everything, my pride, my possessions, my positions, my relationships. doesn't matter what it is. I have left it behind, and I'll finish with this. In this verse 10, it says, They run to it and are safe. They run to it and are safe. You see this word safe, I don't remember what it means in the, uh, in the old Hebrew, uh, but what it really means is to be placed high. To be placed high. So, what he's really saying is like, I'm going to place you high. I'm going to exalt you. It's what he's saying. If you humble yourself, I'll exalt you. Is what he's saying. And so through that is how the transformation begins to view God differently. This, we, we no longer operate in the natural view of God, but we operate in the supernatural vision of who God is and the right view where we see a God every single time that he's merciful and gracious, gentle and lowly. But most importantly, we don't get stuck in this cycle of sin and become like the people in these Proverbs or most of the people in these Proverbs, scoffers, false witnesses, all these other things. And so, tonight as we uh, get ready to take communion, the worship team can come up, um, as we get ready to take communion, um, take a moment to meditate on that. What has the Lord called you to do and are you doing it? Or is your view of God keeping you from doing and fulfilling your calling let's pray (laughs) father we thank you lord because um you are a god who loves us so much that you're so inclined to to have mercy on us